Good morning, Good to see everyone. If you want to open the Bible to Romans chapter 8, we'll do the final verse of Romans chapter 8 this morning. Uh, I do want to just emphasize uh, one of the announcements there. The ladies' uh, meeting on the 16th, if you're a leader here at the Hill, I want to lovingly exhort you to make every effort you can to be here and have something that's necessarily going to pull you away. I would love you to be here. We just want to look back over 2020 and think about where we've gone and uh, here in the 2021, we've been vision casting. We haven't seen each other a ton of members. We just want to do that. So I invite you now to even try to make it. Mark that down in the corner and make sure you're accepted here for that. Mm-hmm. Well, since I was a kid and even today, I must say, I'm getting made by someone. My parents, while getting, getting caught by a train, was really upsetting to them. Uh, it was always an enjoyment for me. I had no sense of time and, you know, I didn't have any schedule, so I wouldn't wait for anything. Uh, so I enjoyed every minute of being caught by a train. It was fascinating to watch the train go by, hear the ground move, and just observe it up close and personal as it went by. But I had a question. I was intrigued by something always. Why was the engine sometimes in the front? And why are we going to sometimes in the rear? Sometimes the train seems to be getting pulled along the track, and sometimes it seems to be getting pushed. Well, then, so later I kind of learned about and thought through the pull cool aspect of a locomotive and how it works, and even, you know, would pull the able to, someone who's able to pull their cargo to one location and simply turn around and push their cargo back the other way. It makes sense, but to me, I had a lot of questions. But in fact, it's been said that the train, the train proved to be actually more efficient when the engine is pulling from the rear rather than pulling from the front. Last few weeks, we have we've been studying what I see as Paul's theological train of thought dealing with sanctification in Romans chapter 15. And this morning, we're going to come, we, we come to the final verses of this most wonderful chapter. I hope and pray you have been blessed by it as I have been over these last couple of weeks. Really thinking through what does it mean to become who we are in Christ. Really think through our sanctification in light of our justification. Sanctification, growing in godliness has been our thing. Really, I feel kind of like boxcars moving along a theological track. Uh, we have followed Paul's logic through this flow of thought through these two chapters. And chapter 6, we began and focused on our new relationship with sin, as believers not being under the law, but under grace. We saw that we are dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. From chapter 7, we we unpack our relationship to the law now as believers. We have been released from the law to belong to the risen Christ. When separate, we were lovingly, graciously confronted with the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. We have grown for glory. But we do so with God's guarantee for us. What for? He works all things for our good. This morning, we come to the end of this what I'm calling a theological frame where we discover the, the engine, the engine that propels us, that propels the Christian life along the track. I think what we come to this morning is the, the sustaining experience 
What do you understand to be inseparable and unbreakable? Because the word you find sense. We'll spend the next rest of our time in these beautiful next eight verses unpacking this statement. That the sustaining experience of our salvation in the exaltation of God's inseparable love for us in Christ. If you think about sanctification as we round out the end of this series, the coming word on the cross, the sustainer of our salvation, the exaltation of God's inseparable love for us in Christ. Romans chapter 8, I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter. It's probably the most familiar words to me. All right, by the Holy Spirit, in verse 31. What then shall we say to this thing? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he is raised. He is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors to you who love us. For I am sure that may be death or life, or evil or evil, may be present, may be succumbed. No problem. No height, no death, no anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we pause after the reading of the word. Lord, we know there is no spiritual life apart from the word. We have our Bible open to us. Holy Spirit would be your work in our kingdom. Anyone here who does not know you, do not call them to the testimony. Do not say to you. Do not sanctify to you. The truth may be there. Lord, I pray the truth of this morning is simply to move out of the way. I want to accept the truth. The result of Christ is not here ever before. But he is the only one of his life, and his grace, and his mercy. Now, as I said, I want to get out of the way of this place the best I can. I'm not going to provide as much of an outline this morning because I'm not getting away. We're just going to walk through these four unanswerable questions, what I want to call them. These four questions. And I'm going to do my outline. I'm going to walk through four, four main questions. 
of the whole group, Paul's four questions are preceded by another question. The first one is, what shall we say to these things? And these things are the questions. Given the exalted status of these final verses, the things things have that location, no doubt, for everything Paul set up into this question. But the then or the therefore, he points to the fact that Paul most certainly has chapter 8 and our verses from last week to mind. The these things is a reference to the golden chain of salvation from verse 2. But you are welcome. And those who need your destiny also call. And those who we call, you also justified. And those who we justify, you also glorify. What shall we say to these things? That's a lot of the false doctrine. And so before we dive into this text, I want you to consider that question. Again, directly. What shall you say to these things? How did you respond? My challenge this morning as a pastor on applying the truth that you believe for it. I challenge you to remain on guard against your faith becoming merely serious. This, this question here begins Paul's concluding words. And he's actually dealing with sanctification. It's important to us. While sanctification requires us studying and knowing the truth of the Bible, it demands much more. It demands our response. It demands the application of these things in our lives. For you to become who you are in Christ, these things must go beyond the mind, to the heart, and out to the hand. True biblical knowledge demands we be bold enough to apply the great truth of our faith to our daily lives. So my challenge this morning as we close out this series, we'll be leaving for a couple months. It's for you to insist on taking the truth of the Word of God and trying it into your life, especially in light of criticism, condemnation, difficulties in your life, as Paul's going to address here this morning. So what shall we say? What shall you say about God's great justifying work in your life? What shall you say about your new relationship with him, no longer a slave, but a son of God? What shall you say about the Holy Spirit's work in your life? What shall you say about your predestination, your calling, your justification, and your glorification? How will these truths take and form your identity? How will they inform your life, your singleness, your marriage, your parenting, your grandparenting, your difficulties, your broken relationships, etc.? What shall you say to these things? Sanctification demands an on our part of applying God's truth to our lives. We must do the hard work of forcing the truth from our minds into the crevices of our hearts, which contain some of the things we take to And Paul's going to help us do this by we're going to do it by way of what I see as four unanswerable questions. The first one is who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if Paul did not say, who is against us? If he said that, 
what we call the long list, right? All kinds of examples. But there are many foes in this life. There are many against us. We have indwelling sin. We have hardships of life. We have persecution of the unbelieving world. The world, the flesh, and the devil are forever against us and will be until the day we have. But that's not the question. And the if here clarifies it. The if here could also be translated if or because. If, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is not suggesting every person can ask this question. This is a question for the believer only. This is a question for the person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. In fact, the scripture makes clear that God is in fact a gift of the We see our sin, our unrighteousness, our separation from him is holy. He has to be it's not for the unbelievers, it's for the believers. It's for the one whom God forgave. It's for the one whom God predestined. It's one. It's for the one whom God called and sanctified, glorified. He's speaking of the one whom all things are working together for his good. That's the That's the one whom God is for. So the question is not about the believer having enemies or enemies. No, of course. The question is whether he's enemies. Whether he's covered with the world or the believer. For the believer whom God is for, they cannot, they will not ever prevail. God is for you, Christian. Do you believe that? And if you remember God is for me. God is for us. And these fanatical religious groups are good for People crash things in the building. People blow up They say God is for them. Why do you know this to be true? Because they say the truth. He who did not say his own son, but raised him up for a thought, how will he not also look in Christians in the temple? The fact that no one will prevail over us as believers is no fairy tale. It's not wishful thinking. It's a promise rooted and grounded in the deepest time of history. So how do we know that God is for us? We look to the cross of Christians. We look to the gospel. Paul uses a greater, a lesser argument here to make his point. If God did the greater thing, giving up his only son, would he not do the rest of it? Give up everything we need to sustain us in our salvation? If he offered up his son on the cross for our sins, it should be a small thing for us to believe. He will provide what we need for our faith. All things sustain us to what we need for sin and our faith. John 3 16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Notice in our text here, in Romans chapter 8, Paul has emphasis in our text through the word own. God did not spare his own God did God gave the most. God made the greatest sacrifice. He did not spare his one on his own. He gave him up willingly and purposely for sin. I really think it's a sin reminds us that. It pleased the Lord 
to bruise, to crush the tongue. It pleased the Lord to subject his beloved son to a sin bearing, sacrificial, horrible, substitutionary death of sin. That's the teacher of the own book in the 19th century was correct and he said, Who delivered Jesus to die? Not Jesus to die. Not fight for fear, not a Jew for envy, but the Father for love. It doesn't be the case, then. Because anything that could stop God's salvation stop that in our life. God himself can't stop it. If he was willing to give up his son, the greatest thing, he would certainly do the lesser thing. People whom he gave his son at home. The logic of this text is about to provide us with an overflowing abundance of confidence and faith. But we must not miss where it comes from. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from assessing how well we're doing the field. It doesn't come from how bad you're doing or how your emotions are doing. It comes from believing the truth of God is for you in Christ. He can raise his very best for you. He prayed his life for you, Christian. Do you believe it? The truth. You can't. You have to believe that he will go on to provide everything you need to stay in the Christian. Okay. 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 Its language reflected of last week in terms of gospel knowing and predestining the believer. Its language that some of us struggle with, thinking about the sovereignty of God. But please notice again how its usage here is in no way cold or distant. It's familiar. It's encouraging. It's intimate and assuring. God's sovereignty is never applied to the Christian. It's a comfort for us, actually. Because we are part of God's love, because we have been chosen freely. But in this case, no one can bring that to this condition. You know, the Bible identifies Satan in Revelation 6 12 10 as the accuser of the judgment. The Bible tells us how Satan desires to report all the bad about us and accuse us and condemn us. So the question is, not that it's happening, but can it work? And it actually works. And Satan's accusation is accusation stick to the believer. The answer must be a resounding no in light of verse 32. For it is God who justifies us. He's the only one who actually matters. 
Jesus took our condemnation. By his death, he paid in full the penalty for the sins which could all be lifted before us. And verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's no protection for us. Christ Jesus not only died, more than that, he was raised. The resurrection forever marks God's stamp of approval over Christ's work. The resurrection takes away all doubt that Jesus' work was somehow not sufficient or not complete. Jesus satisfies every demand of God's holiness for He lived a perfect life. But he died and he was And he was raised in new life. Jesus' ministry is also ongoing. He is raised to set the right hand and he is the right hand of the Father. The following our Bible reading plan, we read Hebrews chapter 1 on Monday of this week, and in verse 3 of chapter 1, we read these words. Speaking of Jesus, after making good decisions to stand in Jesus, that man at the right hand of the master of hand. Having become as much more superior to the angels as the domain he has inherited is now something else. Jesus, taking his seat at the right hand of God, the place of power and authority, the declaration of the Father's satisfaction and the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus was supremely exalted, given the name of every name for the Christ occupies the seat of the highest authority and honor. And he functions. Never lose the coldness of 
always alive in our hearts. Isn't this what we tend to question most in things of difficulty? We tend to question most in things of difficulty. We tend to question love of God. We tend to question the question of His love for us. Amen. What we see here is that Jesus does more than defend us. Jesus does more than defend you. He loves you. With an unbreakable sudden love. He's entered a relationship with you, and because of that, nothing can separate you from him. Paul does provide a litany of possibilities that could separate us from the love of Christ to make it come. But before we kind of look at each one of them, please note the precision of Paul's language Paul does not say, what can separate us from Christ. Now he says, he asks who what can separate us from the love of Christ. Love is what binds us to Christ. Love is what informs our relationship to him. He keeps us because he loves us. It is the love of God in Christ which binds us and not your obedience to him. Not your righteousness, Christian. Your youth and Christ. This is the motivation of the Christian life. This is the engine that you propel us along the track of sanctification. And it is the sustaining assurance of our salvation. I'm going to read it 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That tribulation or distress, or the teaching of pain and making us a dangerous thing. But it is. The rest of the things that all this goes on. The result of the teaching of Christ. No. In all these things, you're more than conscious of things you love. Christ would have death, no life, no end of no rules, no things present, no things that are no power, no sight, no death, no anything else in our creation will be able to separate us. In the love of God, in Christ Jesus. All this situation, it will be people pressure, trouble, because of stress and hardship. It could be outward conflict, it could be inward distress in our soul. What matters is the truth that neither can, neither will separate us from the love of God. You feel alone. You feel unloved. You feel fear, full of distress or anger. I love you. I'm for you. I'm called to Christian. Persecution. It's a real possibility. It's a real possibility to make Christians around the world. It's a real possibility to me. It's not really about the same persecution. What does he do know what they want? What does he do know? He's a good option for you. Then I speak to those who are suffering. Making this the first to death to see the poverty. I'm not going to be a story. And then he's worried. 
believe it's all too well. But the same thing, after that, Paul writes that he's quick on the tongue. He speaks of dangers of rivers, dangers of robbers, dangers of his own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers from the wilderness, dangers from the dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleep of night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. The Apostle Paul was no armchair theologian. He didn't know the certainty of God's love to study only. He was to experience. He endured all these things and more. He stood in the face of danger and death and lived with and he learned not to trust the feelings of emotions. He didn't allow the tears to overcome him. He allowed the truth of the Word of God to inform his perspective. And Paul wasn't alone in his struggle, which is exactly what he quotes Psalm 44 saying to originally sin as a king from Israel in his church. When Lord says, We have been said all the day long, we are regarded as to be slain. Paul knew exactly what it was like to feel like a sheep being led to a small building. Paul knew this. He learned something essential to it. What did he learn? No. That was it. No. In all these things. We are more than conquerors to him alone. The word Paul uses here can be translated literally super conquerors. Notice Paul says, in these things, that we are super conquerors. Not around these things, not in spite of these things, not after these things are over. It's in these things. It means to be more than conquerors is for God to use. These very things for our good. It means that Romans 8 28, that these things are working for our good. The drowning and the pain are producing something as they transform us into the image of Christ. But don't miss the qualification, right? This to Him. And all these things, they're more than conquered through Him. We don't progress from basic home to living. Now, you don't just fly out of the people come to you. Let's see Christ. Christ is the victory. Apart from Him, we are not conquerors. Apart from Jesus, we are all conquered by our sin. We are all conquered by this world. We are all conquered by our pain. But in Him, we cannot be destroyed. We will not be taken. We are victorious to Him. Is 
I began with that question and you started it. How many things in your life are you certain about? How many things in life you speak of with this type of certainty? And I believe this morning, I want you to know this thing is not about wishful thinking. We don't have some serious faith. It's mainly about subjection and encouragement. It's about humble certainty about our relationship with God's people. It's about assurance of God's love for us that has, that will sustain us in this place. No matter what comes out of us. That's what Christianity is. Make this point as one preacher says, Paul here puts the rhetorical pedal to the homiletical pedal to convince us of the unacceptable love of God in Christ that is real. He provides us four pairs of threats of separation. That's what he is. Blinded, searching, confident, persuaded, denied of death or life. He is no rule. I can spread him with him. No power, no hope, no good. But anything else in all cases that is separated from the love of God in Christ. Definitely. The love of human existence. Connection. And the demon, spiritual life. The main separation. These treasure things to come. any event in power of any spiritual realm. Any dark power. Oh, any other words come to me here? No power of hell, no scheme of men, and the fuck you can see. Quick, you can't be in all encompassing formation of everything. Nothing in heaven, hell, or anything of all creation is separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing that can separate us from the love of God. God in Christ follows certainly. It's in you. All of the men of unprecedented faith. He possessed them. A strong sword to work with. All of the men who were on the mission. He beat him with you. He locked him up with a face down. I think. Share the gospel with the day of the Christian. And the Lord keeps living, but he makes more life than me. Well, I'm going to tell you where the guy is going. Because he's not going to be stuck. Why then? Because he's possessed of the same concern to the love of Christ. He's searching. He's searching. No one can take that from him. And this came about through all these things. We don't have to do it. Difficulties were desperate times of the week. Hardship is where our hearts are developed as Christians. The stress is where deep experience and certainty and love of Christ is forced in the I want to end on kind of a different way today. I want to read a, a, a longer story.
story is. And I think it's just to spend your way. But in this thing, finding the incredible love of Christ and how it's our parents and all the reason that we can have. And so we are a young Vietnamese believer named Yung Pham, who was an interpreter for a famous evangelist in Vietnam in Vietnam in 1971. He found this talent called Pizza, the really most unusual circumstances. He worked alongside with evangelists for an extended period of time sharing the gospel during the final years of the war, and he took up a deep friendship. So it was a sad day when they parted away with the American return home. Within the four years, the announcement from state was unknown for 17 years. Until one day, he picked up the phone and called his American friend and religion After the initial small talk of checking out, he was asked how he managed to get out of Vietnam and into the United States. And the American friend was unprepared for the story that followed. He told him that he had to be in the country, arrested him and imprisoned him for but even in a bed in the American, the jail of people had one sole purpose. It was to indoctrinate him against democratic ideas and especially the Christian faith. He was cut off from reading anything in English. He was restricted to communist propaganda and French and Vietnamese language only. And also, he began to take a toll on the unbelievers. He began to consider maybe he may not have an idea. Maybe God doesn't. It's maybe so Christian thing was a far thing. Maybe my whole life has been governed by lies. Maybe I've been deceived. The more he thought, the more he moved toward the truth. And finally, he made up his mind. He determined that when he awakened the next day, he would pray no more. He would never think about this thing as his wrong. The next morning, he was assigned to send the change of the prison. There's no dreaded tool.
not too long for so long. And it has been used as our more relevant hostage of conviction to run on the verge of surrendering the faith and turning away from the virtue. It's a class of all the beginning. And then the first day he said, and he said, he was going to stop praying. And he said, oh God, I've never had a different point as long. And that's the thing with Aspen. The same commander, he was going to the king, he heard it, agreed with him. He continued with the school on a regular basis because he had discovered that some of his sister in the camp was using a Bible for the people. He said, and he said, I'm going to be 